Chapter three of the Memoirs of Chateaubriand, seventeen sixty eight to eighteen hundred. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Nicole Lee, Memoirs of Chateaubriand, seventeen sixty eight to eighteen hundred by Francois Rene de Chateaubriand. Chapter three. Valéolu, January eighteen twelve. Planque, my nurse's vow, Combourg, my father's plan for my education, Villeneuve lucile the mademoiselle coupard schoolboy days my separation from my mother was my first exile i was sent to planque a pretty village situated between dinan st malo and lombard my mother's only brother count de bedet had built near this village the chateau de montchois the possessions of my maternal grandmother extended as far as the environs of the town of Corcel, the curiosolites of caesar's commentaries my grandmother who had long been a widow resided with her sister mademoiselle de boiteilleul in a village separated from planque by a bridge and called la baie because it contained a benedictine abbey consecrated to our lady of nazareth the woman to whose care i was consigned was unable to perform the duties of nurse and another good christian was selected to take charge of me this new nurse placed me under the guardianship of the sacred patroness of the village our lady of nazareth in whose honour she vowed i should be clothed in blue and white until i was seven years of age even in my tenderest infancy the hand of time had already laid its impress on my brow why was i not allowed to die it pleased god to concede to the prayers of a poor and simple peasant woman the preservation of a life doomed to vain renown this vow of the brittany peasant woman is not a thing of the present age but there is something touching in the idea of a divine mother mediating between the infant and heaven and sharing the solicitude of an earthly mother at the expiration of three years i was taken back to st malo seven years previously my father had recovered possession of the estate of combourg he wished to have regained other possessions which his ancestors had parted with he was however unable to bargain for the seigneury of beaufort which had passed into the possession of the goyon family or for the barony of chateaubriand which had fallen to the house of conde he therefore turned his attention to combourg written combourg by Froissart which several branches of our family had possessed through intermarriages with the Coetcon. Combourg defended Brittany against the Normans and the English. It was built by Junken, Bishop of Dol, in 1016. The great tower is of the date of 1100. Marshal de Durin, who held Combourg by right of his wife, Maclovie de Coetcon, the daughter of Chateaubriand, arranged the transfer with my father. The Marquis du Allais, an officer in the horse grenadiers of the Royal Guard, is one of the last scions of the Kirkcon Chateaubriand. At a subsequent period, the Marquis de Durin, in quality of our kinsman, presented my brother and myself to Louis XVI. My professional destination was the navy. To stand aloof from the court was natural to every Breton, and particularly to my father. The aristocratic character of the states of Brittany fortified him in this sentiment. When I was brought back to Saint-Malo, my father was at Combourg, my brother at the College of Saint-Brieuc, and my sisters were living with my mother. All my mother's affections were concentrated in her eldest son. Not that she was wanting in love for her other children, but she manifested a blind preference for the young Count de Combourg. As the last comer, and as the chevalier, for I was called by that title, I at first enjoyed some privileges over my sisters, but after a time I was consigned to the control of the servants. My mother's leisure and thoughts were wholly divided between her love of society and her attention to the duties of religion. The Countess de Plouet, my godmother, was her intimate friend, and she numbered in the circle of her acquaintance the relations of Maupertuis and of the Abbe Troublet. 
My mother was a politician, for the inhabitants of Saint-Malo discussed politics like the monks of Saba in the ravine of Cedron. She was much interested in the affair of La Charlotte. The warmth of her political feeling and the discussions into which it led her probably had the effect of irritating her temper. At home she was cross and excitable, qualities which, joined to habits of parsimony, blinded us for a time to her many admirable qualities. Though herself not deficient in the spirit of order, yet her children were brought up in disorder. Although in reality generous, she appeared avaricious, and with an amiable disposition she was continually peevish. My father was the terror of the domestics, my mother their scourge. The temper of my parents gave birth to the first sentiments of my childhood. I attached myself to the female who took care of me, an excellent woman named Villeneuve. I now write her name with an emotion of gratitude, and with tears in my eyes. Villeneuve, who was a sort of superintendent of the household, used to carry me about in her arms, and give me by stealth all the nice things she could lay her hands on. If I wept, she would dry my tears, and embrace me fondly, muttering, He will not be proud, I know. He has a kind heart, and will be good to the poor. Here, my little man. With these words she would slip some pieces of sugar into my hands. But my childish affection for Villeneuve soon yielded to a more elevated friendship. Lucille, my fourth sister, was two years older than myself. Like a neglected younger daughter, her dress consisted of the left-off clothes of her elder sisters. I leave the reader to imagine a very thin little girl, too tall for her age, her arms swinging awkwardly at her sides, oppressed by timidity, as if afraid to speak and unable to learn anything. Picture her dressed in a frock not made to fit her, her waist compressed by corsets, with whalebones running into her sides, forced to hold her head erect by an iron collar covered with brown velvet, her hair turned up and confined beneath a black toque. If the reader can imagine all this, he may be able to form some idea of the miserable little creature whom I beheld on my return to the paternal roof. Could I have conceived that she would one day be adorned with the talent and beauty which distinguished Lucille? She was my playmate, or rather, I was allowed to make her my plaything. I did not abuse my power. Instead of being her tyrant, I became her defender. Every morning Lucille and I were taken to the sisters Coupard, two old hunchbacked women dressed in black, who taught children to read. Lucille was a bad scholar, and I a worse one. The governesses scolded Lucille, I attacked the governesses. Serious complaints were, in consequence, carried to my mother. I began to be looked upon as a rebel, an idler, and a dunce. This ill opinion of me took a firm hold of the minds of my parents. My father used to say that not one of the Chevalier de Chateaubriand had ever been remarkable for anything but sporting, drinking, and brawling. My mother sighed and groaned when she happened to see my coat torn. My father's ill temper disgusted me, and when my mother summed up her remonstrances with the eulogy of my brother, calling him a Cato and a hero, I felt inclined to make myself as bad as it seemed I was expected to be. My riding master, Monsieur Dupre, who wore a sailor's wig, was not better satisfied with me than my parents. He made me eternally transcribe from a copy of his setting the two following lines which I heartily detest, though not simply for their own demerits. C'est à vous, mon esprit, à qui je veux parler, vous avez des défauts que je ne puis sceller. Samalo is merely a rock. It formerly rose in the midst of a marsh, and became an island by the eruption of the sea, which in 709 worked out the gulf, and placed Mount Saint-Michel in the midst of waves. At present the rock of Saint-Malo is connected with the mainland only by an embankment poetically called the Sion. This Sion is exposed on one side to the open sea, and on the other is washed by the flood-tide when it enters the harbour. It was almost entirely destroyed during a hurricane in 1730. 
at ebb-tide the harbour is dry and on the margin of the sea east and north is a beach of the finest sand at that time it was possible to make the circuit of my paternal home in the course of a walk far and near the eye ranges over rocks forts and inhabited islets fort royal la conchée ses and the grand bay which is to be my last resting-place i chose an appropriate spot without being aware of it for bay in the breton language signifies tomb at the extremity of the sillon where a calvary is erected there is a sand-bank on the very margin of the sea this bank is called the auguette and on it are the remains of an old gibbet round the posts of which we children used to play at quatre coins disputing our places with the sea-birds but it was not without a certain feeling of terror that we loitered on this dismal spot here too are the meal or downs affording good pasturage for sheep on the right are meadows stretching along the foot of the parame the post-road to saint servin the new cemetery another calvary and some windmills on little hillocks like those which rise above the tomb of achilles at the entrance to the hellespont End of chapter 3